Hey everybody, Yislike here. Thanks for tuning in today. Before we start the episode, I want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by A Thousand Dreams, a developing adult liberal arts curriculum that celebrates transgression in most of its forms. Currently, the curriculum is comprised of a daily blog, four weekly podcasts, weekly multimedia lectures, a book vlog, lots of extra content on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest, and a Patreon that includes exclusive content and early access to much of our regular content. You can access all of our content, including a link to our Patreon, from our central hub at a thousanddreams.org. Please send comments and questions about the curriculum to a thousanddreams.org at gmail.com. In the meantime, enjoy the show. everyone. Welcome to Meet the Rockadopolis. I'm Yislike Rockadopolis. And I'm Lance Rockadopolis. And today's episode is the first of a two-part discussion of shame. So first, we're going to talk about shame in general, just to sort of get the lay of the land. And then we're going to talk about sexual shame. In the second episode, we'll apply what we talked about in this episode, to a discussion about the uses of shame in BDSM and the kink community. So there are plenty of definitions of shame out there, and all of them say more or less the same thing. The definitions that I'm going to provide come from Brene Brown, the social researcher known for her wildly popular TED Talk on vulnerability, She also refers to herself as a shame researcher, and here are a couple of her definitions of shame. The first is the intense, painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. And the second definition is shame is a way to communicate to someone that they are not worthy of respect. It's also important to distinguish between shame and guilt. Brene Brown says that shame means I am bad and guilt is I did something bad. From an article in Scientific American, quote, shame makes you focus on yourself, whereas guilt makes you focus on the person you've wronged. So in a way, shame is really kind of narcissistic whereas guilt is more other-directed. And here's another quote from that study. A shame-prone individual who is reprimanded for being late to work after a night of heavy drinking might be likely to think, I'm such a loser, I just can't get it together. Whereas a guilt-prone individual would be more likely to think, I feel bad for showing up late, I inconvenienced my coworkers. Therefore, it appears that guilt tends to inspire positive behavior. If you feel guilty about doing something bad or negligent that hurts someone else, you may want to try to take action to make it up to them. 
Whereas shame is maladaptive. It promotes behaviors that are destructive to oneself and others. You might turn inward and withdraw because you don't feel worthy of interacting. Here's another quote from the Scientific American article. So in order for someone to experience the feeling of shame, the person must be aware of having transgressed a norm. He or she must also view that norm as desirable and binding, because only then can the transgression make one feel truly uncomfortable. It is not even always necessary for a disapproving person to be present. We need only imagine another's judgment. Often someone will conjure an image of a parent asking, aren't you ashamed? Indeed, we may internalize such admonishments so completely that the norms and expectations laid on us by our parents in childhood continue to affect us well into adulthood. Supposedly, there are also some benefits of shame, though. Social control is considered to be a benefit of shame. You can shame people into complying with social and cultural norms for the purpose of maintaining social order. Shame can create a more level social playing field. Theoretically, shame can be used to enforce social norms across the socioeconomic spectrum. From an evolutionary perspective, shame is seen as necessary for humans to survive. Humans are very social animals and can't really survive long without other humans. So following social norms is critical to survival. And also from Scientific American, shame may produce an evolutionary advantage for groups of humans. Given human interdependence, it's important that individuals be kept in line in order to maximize the evolutionary success of the group. So to paraphrase what you just said, it seems the purpose of shame is to protect us from harm in the same way that pain protects us physically. It's basically the warning system. Shame may protect us from that threaten our social identity, or at least to motivate us to repair those important social relationships. So that feeling of shame in the individual is going to keep them from being banished and tossed out into the harsh wilderness. Is that mm -hmm. what you're saying? That's right. It's preservation of the self and of the community itself. Okay, so some negatives about shame. Shame can be used for manipulation. Above all else, shame is a tool for controlling people. Shame can make someone buy a certain kind of toothpaste if you can make them think their teeth are the wrong color. Shame can prevent someone from marrying the person they want to marry by convincing them that doing so is against God. You can shame yourself into staying in a job you hate if that job is your primary source of social status and esteem. That was me for 17 years teaching in academia. Yeah, whenever I feel that someone's trying to use shame against me to control me in some way, I usually get very angry and attack those people, try to manipulate me. Shame can also cause low self-esteem. 
your self-esteem can often be determined by how you think others perceive you. So shaming from peers and others in your social milieu can certainly mess with your self-esteem. One study showed a strong negative correlation between shame and self-esteem. I think it's safe to say, if not self-evident, that people who experience shaming can be very susceptible to developing low self-esteem. So I have a chicken or the egg type of question. Can the use of shame from parents, particularly to control children, lead to low self-esteem? Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of crossover between shame and low self-esteem. Both are about feeling bad about yourself. Shame may be an extreme form of low self-esteem that strikes right to the core of one's sense of self. But the difference might be that shame is often something that other people attempt to force on you, and you can take it from them or not. And while, as the quote from Scientific American says, people will sometimes preemptively shame themselves. That concept of self-shame really resonates with me. I was extremely ashamed of my father, who was an alcoholic, and I believe that prevented me from even wanting to learn how to interact with people. I believe that it prevented me from developing as a person. Because my father was so embarrassing to me, I basically pushed people away. Right. That would be an example of preemptive self-shaming. Because, I mean, you don't know that your friends would have thought less of you just because of your dad. Right. In fact, I know that to be the case because there was one instance where my father totally embarrassed himself and me by, like, singing while he was drunk. And my friend at the time was sleeping over. My friend actually found it amusing and didn't think it a big deal. Which makes me wonder if there wasn't something deeper going on than just your dad embarrassing you. Who knows? Regardless, it's probably true that shame is always something that you ultimately do to yourself, right? No one can make you feel ashamed unless you let them. I don't know if that's true or not. That almost seems like victim blaming to me. Regardless, a 2009 study from the University of Toronto showed that adolescents who were prone to experiencing shame were more prone to showing symptoms of depression and anxiety-related disorders. People have several different reactions against shame, and especially shame as a method of control. The three methods of reacting against shame are defiance, and I previously mentioned that, those who are prone uh, to shame are more likely to respond with anger, which could repair the damage that is caused by transgression. You're basically asserting your autonomy in a particular situation that makes you feel shameful. The other way to react against shame would be to be apologetic. You're basically moving towards the shame by seeking approval and belonging. The third and final way would be to withdraw and move away from the shame by hiding or keeping secrets or staying silent. Hmm. Moving towards the shame with an apology. Yeah, that's interesting. So here are four main areas where people are most likely to experience shame. 
The first one is culture. Not following normative cultural practices like wearing the wrong clothing, for example, could open a person up to shame. Where I went to high school in LA, a fair amount of students came to school wearing clothes associated with their home cultures and countries of origin. For example, students whose family were from India might come to school dressed in kurtis or pajama pants. But where I went to high school in Port Townsend, Washington, those clothes would not have been acceptable at all. Eating the wrong food can be shameful. Coming to school with, you know, with fragrant food that other students aren't familiar with could really cause a lot of culture-related shame. You can also be shamed for mispronouncing a word or speaking a non-standard dialect, like having a Southern accent. Yeah, where I grew up, it, it might not have been as diverse as L.A., but uh, I do remember one, I think he was Sufi. I'm, I'm not sure about that. But he did have the traditional turban and he had Seek. a... He was a Sikh. Yes, exactly. Thank you. He wore the turban, didn't cut his hair either um, on his head or beard. And so <laughs> it was outrageously long, even as a teenager. But it seemed to me he didn't feel shame at all about his heritage. And it was very clear that he was socially confident and he was basically accepted by everybody. Yeah, it might have been that knife he was carrying. Sikh men are supposed to carry a knife everywhere. He I don't wasn't, know about that. He wasn't allowed to carry any such thing, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> Unless he hid it. Regardless, Sikhs are pretty cool. Yeah, Sikhs are known for standing up for themselves. So another source of shame can be trauma and abuse. According to one article that I found, shame and trauma tend to go hand in hand, even after the more extreme effects of trauma wear off. And that is so fucked up, because victims of trauma have already been through enough. In one of my favorite books on trauma, it's titled Achilles in Vietnam. The author recounts a story about an officer who was on the front lines, so to speak. There were not many lines in the jungle. A couple of weeks after he came home, he and his wife went to visit his wife's family and everyone was really excited to see him and really happy. And after dinner, they were all sitting around in the living room, and his brother-in-law asked him, you know, so what was it like in Vietnam? Tell us about Vietnam. And so he started to tell them about Vietnam. And one by one, each of his relatives excused themselves and got up and left the room until only his wife remained. And this story was presented as part of a larger argument that the Worst psychological damage comes from society trying to ignore the trauma as well as the causes of the trauma. Because it's shameful. It's shameful to struggle emotionally and psychologically. And the causes of the trauma are often so shameful that, you know, people don't want to look at them. So not the actions of the soldiers, but the like just totally unconscionable actions of the generals and the State Department that put our soldiers in a lose-lose situation 
physically, emotionally, psychologically, morally, if anybody's going to get the shame, that's where I, I think it should be. And it's often the same with sexual abuse. The abuse is downplayed and or the victims are blamed. And that makes the trauma of the abuse much worse. Now, it does appear that our culture, and by our culture, I mean American culture, is slowly changing for the better when it comes to dealing with trauma and acknowledging its causes. Yeah, that example of the Vietnam veteran is so hardcore and so sad. The person telling his story was basically shunned by his own friends and family. And that's just horrible and it just amplifies the trauma. And of course, the only reason why we know about that story is because his psychiatrist wrote it down, right? It was, you know, it was, it was his psychiatrist who was telling the story, you know, so it was pretty impactful. Another area of life where we find a fair amount of shaming is in religion. I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. Um, uh, you know, I'm a, a practicing Lutheran, but I'm not going to try to deny that Christianity is, among other things, a giant shame factory, maybe even in the best case scenario. It would be the Amazon.com of shame if Amazon.com wasn't already the Amazon.com of shame. Masturbation is a sin. Doing a whole variety of things outside of the state of grace is a sin. Breaking any of the Ten Commandments is a sin. Pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth are all sins. There are so, so many things to do wrong in religion, so many faults to find in others and in oneself. And religion in general is also a great example of how shame is used to control people, and especially sexual shame. Sure, but it's not my experience growing up under the, quote, new improved Catholic Church, especially after Vatican II, but I recognize that there is this strong element of sexual shaming in the Catholic Church. But recently I found Christian sources on the internet that countered the historical shaming view. Those sources quote the Bible, specifically Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, which focuses on what we do with our sexuality is what matters. Quote, it is what comes from inside that defiles you, for from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts and all sorts of sin, including sexual sin, that are what defile you. Sexuality itself is part of God's creation that he deemed good in Genesis, which means that you do not need to feel guilty for the fact that you are a sexual being. While it may still be kink-shaming, pointing this passage out is getting away from sexual shaming. Hmm. I don't know. First of all, kink and sex are very closely intertwined for a lot of us. And secondly, I mean, shaming someone for, for their thoughts. That seems like the deepest, sickest way to use <laughs> shame for control. It's not, it's not even what you're doing. It's what you're thinking that's wrong. Yeah, but fortunately, people are now focusing on passages in the Bible that help point out that sexuality is a natural creation of God, as opposed to focusing on the passages that state that 
sexuality or the perversions, <laughs> whatever that means, is sh shameful. Here's something from the Christian blogger Chris Baldwin. He said something that Yislike has mentioned to me previously on occasion, and that is to be vulnerable. Being vulnerable sheds light on the shame. By being vulnerable, you're saying that this is who I am, and this is what I'm dealing with, and you're basically admitting and recognizing that this is an area of my life that I need to improve. In a way, it's very, very empowering. Yeah, it kind of sounds like he's saying that being vulnerable actually can transform shame into a kind of self-care. What might be a toxic narcissistic focus on how bad one is can be turned into an opportunity for self-development and self-love mm -hmm. just by acknowledging everyone's frailty. It's kind of like an honoring of oneself, warts and all. And that's the opposite of shame. Yes, my other research focused on the signs of sh sexual shame. If you're shamed sexually, you have a tendency to be insecure. Your physical presence might indicate that you're trying to make yourself look smaller by hunching over or crossing your arms. Also, you might have a sexual dysfunction or general dissatisfaction where you're closed off to that sexual energy and it can't produce arousal, excitement, or orgasms. Hmm. That was me. That was definitely <laughs> yeah. me. <laughs> People with sexual shame also have intimacy issues in their relationships. They form walls or limits and boundaries that may make the relationship feel less secure and intimate. They might also have negative views on sex. Sex is seen as something bad and something that you shouldn't be doing. There's also a general uncomfortableness about sex and talking about it. You might feel nervous or have a deep burning embarrassment when the topic of sex comes up. But fortunately, things are changing, as indicated by the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Also, same-sex attraction is now becoming more acceptable. So early on in my adolescence, I did feel some sexual shame. I hid my sexuality from others, and it's very easy to do. Nobody in my friend group wanted to talk about sexual deviance. All they wanted to talk about was vanilla sex, and they certainly wanted to talk about that. But in my youth, I did value intellectual capacity more so than my physical desires. I basically eschewed carnal pleasures and thought myself more of a highly intellectual being. Yeah, you told me you were trying to emulate Spock by eradicating <laughs> the human in you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I would go that far to say that, but... Close, yes. Well, what you told me that you wanted to eradicate the human in you, and that did sound a lot like that. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Okay. Um, am I shaming you? Am I geek shaming you right now? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, but I, I never beat myself up about my sexual preferences, about being a submissive to the extent that you seem to have over your sadistic and dominant leanings. 
As I previously mentioned, I did have shame over my father and his drinking, and that prevented me from wanting to get close to people. Honestly, when I started getting sexual feelings as an adolescent, I was terrified of them, partly maybe due to my deviant sexual inclinations early on, but mostly because of things my mother told me about sex. Basically, she said that having sex would make me feel very vulnerable emotionally, and that boys would lie to me and pretend that they wanted a serious relationship just to have sex and then dump me. And that discussion had a really powerful impact on me, mainly because my father had cheated on my mother and, you know, had abandoned us both for the 19-year-old girl that he had been fucking. And that was devastating to both me and my mother emotionally and materially, basically threw us into deep poverty. And it definitely influenced my perspective on relationships for a long time. For example, I chose my future ex-husband because I knew that he was basically asexual and easy to control and that I wouldn't have to worry about him abandoning me. And it also meant that I wouldn't have to face my true sexual nature. It was a win-win situation as far as I was concerned. I saw my life with him as parallel to a young gay man choosing to become a Catholic priest in order to remove any temptations to act on his true sexual nature. Thankfully for me, that didn't end up working out as planned. And here I am exposing all of the sordid details of my deviant sex life and rather bizarre love life to potentially billions of people. That's right. Billions. It could happen. Billions of people exist. They could all tune in. Yes. Your ambition is very attractive, actually. <laughs> Thank you. So now we're going to pause our discussion of shame, and we'll pick it up again in the next episode, episode 18, where we will talk about kink shaming from the vanilla world, as well as from the kink community itself. So until then, thank you very much for joining us today, and have a great week. <laughs>